Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Well, welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. And today we're going to be talking about relationships. And I am joined by someone who is a very special guest that I've had the privilege of getting to know over the last year or so. And I know that she is deeply committed to women, midlife and beyond, having real, strong, healthy, robust relationships. Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause, Deb Morgan. Thank you very much, Clarissa. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. And I know a little bit about your story and how maybe relationships have been very front and center of it. Mm -hmm. Am I right there? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, For my listeners, I'd love you to share a little bit about who you are and how some of your relationship experiences have maybe shaped where you are today in the work you do in helping other women. Oh my goodness, how long have we got? Um, (laughs) First and foremost, I'm Deb Morgan and I'm the real relationships expert at Not A Rehearsal. And that's the company name set up because I or named because I have a passion for the theatre and it was always my childhood ambition to become a professional actor. And you might think I'm going off on a massive tangent right now, but it does have a bearing on the rest of my story. I got my equity card um, which is membership into the Actors Union, which, you know, certifies you as a professional actor. When I was at the age of 42, just at the point when I thought there really wasn't an awful lot left for me in life, mm-hmm. having gone through probably the worst experiences of my life at that point. So I share that because it's proof that after any adversity, there is opportunity, no matter how difficult it is and how obscure it may seem at the time whilst you're dealing with the adversity. And the adversity is my relationships. I was married for the first time. Just I had just gone 20 when I married my first husband. We had been together since we were, I think, 14. So my childhood sweetheart. And he treated me like a princess. And then on our wedding night, he beat me up for the first time. And that was a bit of a shock to say the least. And I can remember going downstairs to breakfast the following morning. We were staying in a hotel for our wedding night and thinking to myself, when you see in films and read in books, people saying, you know, are you ready for the wedding night? I'd always thought they were talking about sex and losing your virginity. Yes. And that morning I thought they weren't talking about that at all. They were talking about the fact that you get beaten up on your wedding night and you become your husband's property because he beat me up that night and said to me, you're mine now. I can do what I want with you. Oh, my goodness. That must have been such a huge shock having the fact that you'd known this person for six years. It's not like you've met somebody six weeks, which happened to a friend of mine, and Mm -hmm. then subsequently he beat her up and you would expect that. But this was actually somebody with whom you'd had a long relationship. Mm -hmm. And I can, exactly. And I remember sitting down at breakfast, looking at all of these other couples in the dining room of the hotel, thinking, is this what all of you other women in here went through on your wedding night? That must be what it is. And just not being able to look them in the eye 
it was awful. And it took me a long time to recognize that actually that wasn't acceptable behavior. Daft as it may seem, took a while for me to realize, no, this isn't what happens in a normal marriage. And so 18 months later, I left him, filed for divorce, and I was divorced by the time I was 22, which isn't one of my best achievements, but at least I got out of that relationship. But as I say, I had been beaten up a number of times since then and only got out when a friend of mine who I worked with turned around to me and said, you're coming for dinner on Friday night, you're speaking to my husband and you will be filing for divorce. And I looked at her and I said, pardon, she was a bit older than I was and her husband was a barrister. So um, (laughs) it it took somebody else pointing out to me that this was very, very wrong before I was ready to, to make any move at all. And there was so much fear. But I felt I was in safe hands when people knew, around me knew what was going on to the point where they were about to take control and say, you're going to do this. I felt that I was in very safe hands. So nonetheless, not to dwell on that, I was divorced by the time I was 22. It was very acrimonious. And I went out in my 20s and sort of ended up in a couple of relationships. But then at around the age of 30, I met my second husband. Now, the irony that I then met and married my kickboxing instructor isn't lost on me after having been divorced from a man who beat me up. At least I knew how to look after myself. What I hadn't realized was that domestic abuse, domestic violence takes many, many forms. And it's not just about bruises and cuts and split lips and black eyes and broken ribs and all that sort of stuff. It actually abuse affects your entire body. And I met my second husband and I was at the age, I was 30, my body clock had started to tick. I knew that if I was going to have children, I needed to have them quite soon um, because I didn't even know if I could have children at that point, I have to be honest. And I met him. He was a single dad. He had three children. He was tall, dark and handsome. He could look after me physically and again, treated me like a princess. So it wasn't long before I was smitten. And when he asked me to marry him, I thought, well, actually, you know what? I'm now, I was, how old was I? I was 33 when I, no, 32 when I got married. So I thought, this is inevitable. I'm in my 30s now. This is obviously when I need to settle down. And a number of friends had said to me, oh, we're not sure about him. Don't know. And I said, well, what's he done? They said, can't put our finger on it. And I said, well, he's not done anything wrong. So got married. Seven miscarriages later, I had my son. My goodness. I set up my own business. And all was going very well until he decided he was going to be a house husband and I needed to work. And the business went very, very well. It grew to be a UK industry leading business and we grew incredibly fast. I had a team of staff. I was turning over a ridiculous amount of money. My salary bill was in excess of 10 grand a month, but I was burnt out. I barely got to be a mum. And we got to just about three years down the line, and it was New Year's Eve 2008. I logged on to the bank at home to pay my staff, and there was no money in the account, and I couldn't pay my team. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, there's a mistake here. I've entered something wrong. I'm looking at the wrong account, logged out, logged back in. It was right. I couldn't pay my team. Called my husband up the stairs. My office was upstairs. He came running upstairs. I think he heard the sense of urgency in my voice. And I showed him what was going on. And he just stood there and said, I told you this was going to happen. What do you think you could do running a business? You you know you're not good enough to run a business. I told you this was going to happen. I said, look, stop blaming me for anything right now. I've got to sort this out. We need to do something. I just need you to put your arms around me and tell me everything's going to be okay. And he's six foot five and he stood with his back against the wall, his arms by his side and just looked at me and said, I can't because I don't know that it will. I said, I'm not asking you to solve this. I just need to know you're supporting me in my attempts to fix this. I can't because I don't know that it will. And I knew at that point my second marriage was over and I went down. I went through bankruptcy as The months that followed, obviously, I closed the business. I had to take it through insolvency myself. I had to lay my team off with immediate effect and no pay, which was horrific. The absolute worst thing I've ever had to do. Yeah. Um, You know, I went through personal bankruptcy. And about six weeks later, I'd just got to a point. I was then, I was sleeping in our spare room. He wasn't talking to me. He would literally, if I walked into a room, he'd walk into another room. If I asked him a question, he'd completely ignore me. Um, And I thought, 
I deserve better than this. I'm not staying. And I remember waking up one Saturday morning. I said, I'm going. And he didn't even look up. And I left my son there with him because I didn't know where I was going. And I thought my son at the time was three years old. I wasn't prepared to drag him around spare rooms, sofas, anywhere. When I'm sorted out, I will be back to get him. And he said, over my dead body, will he live with you? And I, okay. Anyway, I just thought, oh, that's just his reaction. He thought he was just going to not talk to me for a couple of weeks and I'd come round to whatever he was thinking and that would be it. So off I went, you know, managed to get myself sorted, managed to get a job, went back to get my son. And he said, no, over my dead body, is he going to live with you? So that started a 10-year legal battle to get custody and residency wow. of my son. 10 years? Yeah, That's a long years. time. Oh, it is, definitely. And believe you me, there was more than one occasion where I wanted to give it all up. And I learned in that time that I'd actually been subject to a psychologically abusive relationship and there'd been a lot of coercive control going on in the relationship. And I won't bore you with the intricacies here right right now, but a lot of business decisions, um, he'd managed to talk his way into becoming a co-director because... By just being a house husband, he felt emasculated by my success. And if he was a co-director, he could manage the office for me while I was out. What he was doing was telling the team when I was out, don't listen to Deb. She doesn't know what she's talking about. We're doing it this way. And actually, he was very uncomfortable with the target market I was working in, which I niched down a lot. And I had Mm. good clients within that niche. And he wasn't comfortable working in that niche. So he expanded the business to do a lot of stuff I didn't want to do, didn't want to take on, started confusing the marketplace, confusing the staff. And it got to a point where shortly after, you know, all the business had gone through, that was done and dusted. But my, my former marketing manager contacted me and said, you need to know he was sabotaging it from within. So I started doing more investigation into what went on. And I could, I could see the pattern. And hindsight's a wonderful tool, but I could see that going on. Over the years of trying to get my son to live with me, I obviously spoke to numerous solicitors. The police were involved at various times. We had to get social services involved. My son was being neglected by his father, unfortunately, and I knew all this was going on, but he was very, very good at covering it up. And yes, he's had years of practice, hadn't he, Deb, of psychologically manipulating you. So he was doing the same to the child. That's it. And my son, you know, children pick up on things and they do what they can to protect themselves and protect their carers. And my son was therefore telling the social services who were involved that everything was fine. And he's a bright kid. He was presenting well. He was always clean. He'd always had his breakfast and he was always polite. So they said, well, there's no problems there. He's not presenting like an abused child. And at the end of 10 years, I ended up with a 200-page report from social services showing years and years of neglect of my son. Um, It was heartbreaking and they just not noticed it. But because he wasn't at risk of physical or sexual abuse, they weren't prepared to do anything about it. The Children's Act as well. You know, they didn't want to take my son and get away from his roots, cultural roots. So they kept him where he was because I had moved across a number of counties by then. And it was really difficult. And also at that time, in the eyes of the law, because I had left my son with his father, I had voluntarily given up my right to be his primary carer. Yes, of course. The law is very strange in this, isn't it? Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't always follow the emotional patterns, it just follows the strict letter of the law. Exactly. And and there's no grey in that. That's it. So it doesn't pick up on the nuances. Um, So I had, you know, the 10-year legal battle was as much about fighting that as anything else. But in amongst that time, I said earlier, you know, there were times where I wanted to give it all up. And I got to a stage where I'd been, I'd managed to get work after the business had gone through. I'd been made redundant three times within an 18-month period. I actually got sacked from one job for refusing to sleep with the boss, which was a bit ironic when I tell you what I'm about to tell you. And um, I got to one evening, well, one week, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. My son is better off without me because he's in the middle. Nobody's going to miss me. I was going out. I was drinking too much. I wasn't eating properly. I was having one night stands because I was trying to find somebody that would love me. Of course. You know, I really wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't being good to myself. And I just got to a stage where I was about to go through bankruptcy for a second time. 
Um, I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't, it was in November. I think it was November, 2010. I couldn't afford to buy Christmas presents for my son. So I was doing um, buy, sell and swap sites on Facebook and eBay and charity shops and free cycle. And I thought, no child deserves to have gifts that somebody else has used. No matter how loved, how much good condition they are. I just wanted to buy him one gift, one gift that was brand new and I couldn't do it. And I thought, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this to my son anymore. I'm not doing this to myself anymore. So I spent a week going around various shops, buying the tools I needed for my next venture. And I sat down and I was very methodical about it. I decided I was going to take an overdose and I'd pushed all the pills out of their blister packs and they were sat on my desk in neat little piles in front of me. I had the best part of a bottle of wine. I opened the vodka. I had a second bottle of wine there as well because I was determined it was going to work. And so I opened the vodka and picked up one pile of pills. I tipped them into my mouth, was tipping the vodka back into my mouth. And as I tipped my head back, I caught sight of a photo of my son on my bookshelf. And I looked at him and I thought, I can't do this to you. You do not deserve to get to 14, 15, and he's 15 now. You don't deserve to get to 14 or 15 growing up in the belief that mummy killed herself because she didn't love you. Because he'd been being told, mummy left you because she didn't want you anymore. Of course, because that's the way you manipulate. You manipulate a child that way and you manipulate their emotions and they believe then what they're told. They're only children. They're quite black and white. Exactly. But that night was a pivotal moment. And I thought, right, what what else can you do? What can you do to change this situation? And I thought, sod it. You're giving yourself away for free. It's about time people started paying for it. And I set myself up as an independent escort, which maybe wasn't the best thing I would do. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't advocate anybody else doing that if they were in a similar situation. However, what it did bizarrely was teach me a lot about a what I was capable of I had I found a strength that evening that I didn't know I had it also over the months that followed taught me a lot about the human psyche taught me a significant amount about the male psyche and I actually started researching whilst I was working within the sex industry why people sell sex, why people buy sex. And I was probably pretty rubbish, actually, because I'd see clients and I'd marketed myself at the top end because I thought if they if they want a piece of me, they've got to pay through the nose for a piece of me. Exactly. And I remember, you know, I had clients, I would have regular clients and they were all very, very nice people, respectable people, business people, professional people. And I'd start saying, so why, do, you know, why do you come and see me? Why don't you you know, why don't you spend time with your wife? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? So I was asking lots and lots of questions. And the time came when I, I came out of the industry anyway. I got, I'd reached a point where I'd gone in and set targets. I wanted to be able to pay my rent up front for a year. I wanted to have enough money to live off for a year. I wanted to put a little bit aside into a savings account so that I could start saving for my son's university fees. Those days are now fast approaching and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, is it ever <laughs> going to be enough? <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Story. Yeah. And um, I thought I need to get out of this because I was approaching 40 and I thought if I stay in this industry and I was getting some really, really good connections, I was getting some very lucrative offers and I thought, you know what, if I stay in this industry, I've got to cut off my life as I know it. My son was getting older. I couldn't, I didn't like the duplicity. I didn't like, I was lying to my friends and my family about what I was doing. Obviously, I wasn't able to tell my son what I was doing, but suddenly, you know, I had money. I could afford stuff that I couldn't afford just weeks earlier. Which could have so jeopardized your case, couldn't it, in getting custody of your child? It could have, but again, in hindsight, it wouldn't have. But I found that out long after the the time. But, um, you know, at that time, I thought, yes, it's going to jeopardize things. So I had to be very careful. I thought, no, I've achieved the objectives I set out to achieve. I actually feel much better about myself because bizarrely, I was treated with so much more respect by my clients than any of the men A, I'd married and B, I'd had one night stands with. So I was, I was noticing this juxtaposition. I thought there's something in this. 
So I then, you know, became fascinated by the sex industry, but I wanted to learn more. And I thought, okay, how can I find out more about all of this? Well, it's got to be psychology. So that set me down a path to study psychology and counseling with the Open University. That's wonderful. But that fascination with the sex industry didn't leave me. What it did do was give me the framework for really good business model, which I'm not going to go into now because no. it's not about business, but it, no. the, the business model was great. And it, I pulled it apart and pulled it apart. So I apply that to what I do now. I've built my coaching program around that. And I, I say I use SIM methodology. SIM stands for sex industry model. <laughs> and that's not because I get naked with my clients or anything scary no, like that. No. But it's about you know, using what I learned from that, using my learned and lived experiences from abusive relationships. And funnily enough, while I was in just coming out of the sex industry, I ended up in another long-term relationship and that was financially abusive. So, you know, I ticked the box in all forms of abuse there. My first marriage was physically and sexually abusive. The second was psychologically abusive, what we now know as coercive control. And then the third one was economically abusive. So I had all of that lived experience. Then I had the experience of people buying me but treating me with so much more respect than anybody else had treated me that I couldn't work it out. So then by applying my psychology training, I thought, okay, there's a lot in this. Yeah. This is about relationships. This is about what makes people do the things they do. And that's the overriding question. Why do people do the things they do? That's what we want to find out through psychology. Exactly. And when, yeah. when I started putting all of that together, I thought, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, you know, light bulb moment going off. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, okay, I know, I knew through my training, I didn't want to go into counseling. Counseling is fantastic, but I wasn't interested in looking at the past. I was interested in looking at the past and learning the lessons from it to drive me forward. Yes. So that's why I need yes. to do coaching. So I worked with my own coach and I said, right, that's it. I'm a life coach. I thought, well, I don't know. I'm not really, you know, I can't, I didn't feel qualified enough to talk to people about their businesses. Although I've, you know, I've built a successful business. I know how to close one. I didn't feel that I was qualified enough to talk about that. Finances wise now, you know, I'm pretty good with my money these days, but again, didn't feel that I was qualified to talk to people about finances, having been through bankruptcy and business insolvency and all of that. Yep. And I thought, I don't know. I thought, you know, I've got so much to offer, but I just don't, I couldn't package it up. And these things go through a massive evolution, as you know. And yes. a coach said to me about two years ago, she said, Deb, it's staring you in the face. You know about relationships. I said, oh yeah, what do I know? But you do, but you exactly. really do. She was right she because was, you've, experienced, you <laughs> you've experienced, you've experienced multiple I, relationships. Yeah. Exactly. And I was fortunate that just over seven years ago, I got reconnected with the love of my life. Because in between husbands one and two, I had met somebody who he was absolutely the love of my life. Oh. We had dated for a year, but he was going off to university as a mature student. I was going off to um, work in London. And these were the days before we all had mobile phones. So maintaining a long-term, a long-distance relationship was difficult. And it just fizzled as these things did. But our paths crossed again seven years ago when I'd started to pursue my dreams and do what was right for me. Isn't which that strange? Me back, yeah, Isn't that strange? Brings me back to telling you about why not a rehearsal is named after my love of the theatre because our paths crossed when he'd gone into a theatre to buy tickets for a play, happened to look at the posters on the wall, saw my face staring down at him, Asked the box office manager if I was the person he thought I was. The box office manager looked and said, oh, do you know, I think you're right. She used to be in a children's theatre company with my children when she was a teenager. I'll make some inquiries. And he, my partner turned up on opening night and basically said to me, I spent half of my life looking for you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. If you tell me you are completely happy with where you are now, I will walk away knowing you're happy. But if you're not happy, 
I want you in my life for the rest of my life. Oh, my And three God. weeks later, I left the person I was living with who was economically abusive and moved lock, stock and barrel into my partner's bachelor pad, um, <laughs> <laughs> which again, is not something I recommend people do, but I just knew. I, I said for years and years and years, I am going to end up with him one day. I've not got no idea where, when or how, but I will. Friends of mine thought I was mad. They thought I needed help. So when it eventually did happen, they all turned around and said, well, all those years we thought you were mad. But oh, my goodness. Um, that was <laughs> we're no longer in his bachelor pad, I'm glad to say. We have moved out and bought a nice little yes. house of our own. And of course, when you have somebody completely supportive by your side, the last, well, it would have been the last four years of my legal battle suddenly became so much easier. And things started to go my way. My son has now been living with us for four years. And you know that was a shock to the system, taking on a child who was then what, 11. Um, he's now 15. But it's been fantastic. And it's all part of the journey. So in terms of relationships, I know about what makes bad relationships. I've got a, a relationship which is so unconditional now. He knows everything about my past. Um, I'm not judged on it. He doesn't beat me with it, literally or metaphorically. Wow. You know, when my coach said, Deb, you know about relationships and you know how to get good relationships, despite how we ended up together, you know, I'd have to do a lot of work on myself to feel I was, I was entitled to that sort of relationship, that I was worthy of that sort of relationship. And that was, you know, it took a long time to learn how to be loved unconditionally. What an amazing story. And I mean, she's so right, your coach. You know about relationships in in all their forms, good mm. and bad. And and as you said, you learnt a lot about the male psyche. So I think women often don't fully understand what's going on in men's minds. Mm. And and we then are either in relationships that aren't working or we're in relationships that maybe partially work but aren't fulfilling. Mm-hmm. One of my questions, Deb, is a lot of women reach midlife. There's so many of the women who listen to this podcast, they're in mm-hmm. their 40s and their relationships go awry for a variety of reasons. And many people end up leaving. Is this partly because they've been putting up with things? Or what are some of the reasons that you hear and know about that women want to end relationships and, and often do at this time? Oh my goodness, there's so many layers to this. Mm. You've hit on one of them. Yes, people have been putting up with behavior that's not acceptable for a long time and reach a stage where they say, that's it, enough is enough. It usually coincides with the time if they've got children, where the children are more independent or about to leave home, go to university, whatever. And so many couples stay together for the sake of the children. So you reach this time in midlife where you say, right, we've done our bit now. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I deserve better. I want to leave. But at the same time, we're also dealing with the fact, and this is where I say there's so many layers, women generally, at the age we're at now, and I'm almost 50, so definitely midlife, generations before us believed the woman's place was in the home. Now, if you go back a number of generations, even back to Victoria times, Victorian times, we have come a significantly long way in that time in that women are now allowed to work, you know, they're allowed to earn their own money, all of that sort of thing. But each one of these changes is generational. So we still are living with people, with partners who actually in their subconscious still believe because it's their social conditioning and their generational conditioning, that actually a woman's place is in the home. Man is the provider, the woman is the nurturer. You know, this goes back on so many levels. So we're dealing with that. But as we grew up, of course, as women, we were led to believe, and if you're, if you're one of the Thatcher's generation, and I was, you know, we were led to believe we could have it all. So we expected to have it all. And we've gone out and had good careers. We've gone out and had our own money and had our own social life. But very often what we've done when children have come along, we said, okay, I want to look after my children. I will take a step back in my career. I will take a job that enables me to be there for my children 
So we allow our husbands, our partners to move forward. We put our life on hold effectively whilst bringing up the children. And that in itself is a full-time job. You know, it's uh, it's not that we're doing anything <laughs> no. less worthy. Oh no, my goodness. No, no. Um, you know, it's really difficult. But we then get to the stage where all of those years, so say your child is 18-ish, the resentment starts to come to the fore because we know how much we've given up to be there for our family. And whilst we don't object to giving that up, because in most cases it's a choice, you know, we all have choices. It is a choice. We still resent the fact that actually once upon a time we were flying high and now we're not. And we see perhaps single women or other people who, other women who may have had it all, perhaps they've got a more supportive husband, perhaps they had nannies, perhaps they had help in the home, which they don't talk about. We still compare ourselves to these other people or our image of what we should be doing. So we we then get very resentful and say, no more, I'm going out there, I'm living my life now. That's, that's a term I often hear. It's time for me, it's time for my life. They do that. We also have to remember that at this time of life, we're going through significant physiological changes in our lives as well. You know, we're becoming perimenopausal. We're going through the menopause. We don't go through a shift as big as that in our bodies at any other time other than when we started our periods or when we're pregnant. Exactly. Yeah. This is a massive, massive shift. So we're dealing with all of that, all of the resentment. Kids who are about to become independent, you're dealing with the empty nester syndrome. We're struggling to deal with all of that. But then we've also got a partner, and I'm talking about a male partner here, but you know, if it's fe- if you've got a female partner, you're both dealing with all this stuff. If you've got a f- male partner, they're trying to work out what's going on in your life because they've been looking after you up until now, so they think. They don't understand these changes. There's not enough information out there for males about the impact of menopause, perimenopause on their partners. But men are also going through physiological changes as well. You know, they start to suddenly, they start to hold on to weight. Their hair starts falling out. You know, they're at the age where prostate cancer becomes an issue. They've got to look after their prostate. All of these things that they haven't had to think about up till now suddenly come into play for men as well. And, you know, they're dealing with their own stuff as well as trying to deal with the women's stuff. And it causes this melting pot, this pressure cooker within the home. And of course, people say, right, that's it. I can't cope with this anymore. I've done, you know, the men will say, I've done my bit for this family. That's it. The woman will be saying, I've done my bit for the family. It's time for me. And boom, that's it. So, you know, that's, that's why I believe we get to this stage in midlife. We have got so much going on. That we don't even recognize as having an impact on us. No, and I think you've really hit on some really big, very important themes. And I'm I'm glad you brought up actually the male menopause, because I think we underestimate how much that can change men that we've maybe seen in our lives as being energetic and outgoing. And suddenly we've got this couch potato who's put on lots of weight and he might not even be the same attractive man that we were involved with when we were younger. And I think we get annoyed about that because I think a lot of midlife women are really trying a lot to stay fit and stay young and have new ideas. And and we resent that he's comfortable where he is. Mm, there is that. And also, don't forget, a lot of men get very, very depressed about these changes in their life. Yes. Because it, it questions their masculinity, their virility. You know, they might have got to a point where, and this is sort of going back to the lessons I learned within the sex industry, yeah, they really thought they were these young, virile studs. And all of a sudden, midlife comes upon them and they, they can't quite perform the way they used to. And they start seeking ways of proving to themselves that they're still the the vibrant young man that they were. And unfortunately, they seek ways differently to women. And that's when they will go and buy sex because they yeah. want proof that they're amazing. And of course, you know, somebody who is paying for sex, the person delivering that service, because ultimately it is just a service industry, but the person delivering that service isn't going to turn around and say to them, oh my goodness, really? Is that all you can manage? <laughs> they're going to make them out to be 
a god, you know. Exactly. Um, it's a massive acting job. It is a massive, massive acting job. And trust me, if you want great sex, do not work in the sex industry. No, I would think it's probably very lousy sex a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah. You're not going to get, for example, you know, men who have great relationships with their wives in the bedroom seeking that kind of sex, unless they're a sex addict and that's a completely wow, different conversation. Wow, that's a massive generalisation. Mm. Massive generalization. Quite often they'll have great sex lives with their wives, wow. but they won't be able to talk to them. And yes. it's partly where I learned about coaching because I, I got to a stage where I thought, hang on a minute, when I look at how much time I'm spending actually having sex with people and how much time I'm actually spending coaching and counseling these people, the coaching and counseling weighed up far more. It was, it was about 90% of the time they just wanted somebody to talk to and That's to listen sad. to them. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very sad, actually. It's actually sad. Um, and that's when you start to question. For me, I started to question what was the media telling us about all aspects of life? Because when I entered it, I was very much expecting um, the men visiting me, they would be sad individuals with not much of a life, um, almost sort of, you remember the old men with the flasher max. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I was expecting yeah. that sort of person. And then I was getting a strip, you know, streams of professional men, well-dressed, well-groomed men um, through the door. Now, I was lucky I wasn't working on the street and that's no. very different again. That's yes. very, very dangerous. Yes. Yes. Um, so I'm not glad, I don't want to glamorize this. I don't want people to think I'm glamorizing the industry. No. But what it taught me, as I said, that's, that was my trigger to study psychology because I couldn't understand why these men who, and I would say, well, do you love your wife? I say, yes, I do. So why are you coming to see me? Because I need this release. And if I have an affair, I'm tied in emotionally. If I pay for it, it is just a business transaction. Oh, and that's that's sad, but it's also kind of a reflection of that maybe mm. there is a relationship there that had they have the right sort of coaching and support could actually be turned into a very different relationship, if I'm right, than, exactly. than where they are. Because isn't it all about being able to communicate more effectively? And that's exactly what it boils down to. You know, we spend so much time living our lives, going through each day, you know, what's for dinner? Have you done the shopping? Have you put the bins out? Can you clean the floor because I'm doing this? I need to take part of the MOT. I need to do this. You need to renew your insurance or whatever it is. All of the minutiae of life gets in the way and we forget how to talk to each other. And actually it's that taking time for each other is so, so important. And, you know, there's lot, been lots in the press over recent years about the importance of a date night. And so many people poo-poo it. But the difference I notice with my clients when I say, even if it's not a date night, try and sit down and have dinner together. Switch the TV off, put your mobile phones aside and eat your evening meal together, you know, as a family or as a couple. Or take time out, just go for a walk together, but put your phones away. Have those conversations. Ask, you know, what are they looking forward to in the next year? Keep it as open as that to start the conversation going. And just remind yourself what it is you fell in love with that other person. You know, what, what enabled you to fall in love with that person in the first place? Now, it might be that there is no spark there and you come to the decision, that actually, you know what? It is time to move on. But very often, it's just that they have forgotten how to be together. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've watched, I was a single mother, so it was different for me, but I watched wonderful colleagues literally, as you said, run their lives with a spreadsheet. It was so full of everything they were doing for their children. And then suddenly children become teenagers. They don't want to speak to you. They start doing their own thing. And there's this vacuum. And in that vacuum, you've lost communication. You've lost your interests. Maybe you've lost a bit of your joint friends because everything becomes around, particularly if you have a family with kids, becomes about that. And suddenly you're like, oh, hello, who are you? Am I still married to you? And sort of not being able to converse with each other except around tasks. Exactly. And, you know, it take, this stuff takes hard work. It takes a lot of hard work and effort. And, you know, I say to my clients, you've got to be committed to this. And if they say, well, actually, this is the end of, this, end of the road, 
I don't know what to do. I don't want to go into the same relationship, sort of relationship again. I want to go into a new relationship, a healthy relationship. Then I work on them with that. You know, I'm not about making them stay together regardless. It is about, you know, the first step in my program I call Get Real. It's about the transparency and being absolutely brutally honest about where you're at and what you want. And that's tough. It is tough because many of us just lose sight of that in the busyness of everyday life. Mm -hmm. We're not sure. Uh, Maybe we're even out of touch with some of our values, even though deep down we know them. We're not clear what our purpose in life is, what we really want, let alone for ourselves, let alone in a relationship. And and I notice that a lot of women, life has just kind of ticked on. And suddenly we're faced, I think, in menopause with a big change because everything changes in many ways there as the life around us changes, then we kind of have to make a reconnection to ourselves. Exactly. So if you had some key, three key things that you would say are some of the things, if you're feeling this way, where would we begin to start putting a relationship in back into focus, whether it's going to last or not? One of the first things I do, and I've just touched on it a little, is establish some time where you can just be together. And for a lot of people, that's really scary because it means changing things. But even if you've got your partner has become a couch potato, as you've just described, and I've just been working with a client on this and it's been really successful. When you're working with the individual, the individual that I'm working with is the one that has to take control because, you know, the other partner has no idea what's going on. Working with a couple is very different, but Working with the individual, they have to take control. So if you want to change your partner's behavior, you need to model the behavior you want them to adopt. So if your partner has become the couch potato, you need to start off by spending just evenings sat with them, talking to them, and even start asking about what it is they're watching. Now, it might be they are watching stuff you really don't want to watch. It could be the football, it could be the <laughs> golf, it could be the racing, it could be sci-fi, it could be cowboy films, who knows what it is. Um, sitting with them for even half an hour, just taking an interest in what they are watching starts indicating to them that you are interested in them. And they will gradually start to respond. Now, it takes a long time. You know, I'm not saying it's going to be an instant overnight fix. It does take a long time. It takes consistency. And it's almost like with a toddler, in order to get a toddler to learn, you have to model that behavior and you have to be consistent with it. It's the same when it comes to your husband. <laughs> Treat your husband like you would a toddler. You're not far on. Uh, sorry, sorry um, Ben. <laughs> you know, it is about the same sort of consistency that you apply to young children. You need to apply that to your relationship. And if you have men listening to this and you know they're dealing with it on the opposite side, do the same thing. Sit and take an interest in what your partner is doing, whether they are reading chick flicks, whether they're watching rom-coms, um, and I'm being very, you know, very stereotypical here, I'm, I'm aware of it, but it could be that they're sitting and they just want to bake every evening and you're sick and tired of them baking, you're enjoying the, the results, but you just wish they'd spend some time with you. So when wishing they would spend time with you, you go and spend time with them. Even, you know, I'm not saying get involved in the baking, but it might be just going into the kitchen with them and washing the dishes as they go along so that you're there with them and you're taking an interest in what they're doing. and It sounds really counterintuitive, but it does show them on a real subliminal, subconscious level that you are still interested in them and what they love. Because after all, we are attracted to people by their interests and what brings them alive, you know, what what they're passionate about. Of course. So we need to tune back into that using whatever tools we have available to us at that moment. So that would be my first tip, I guess. Yes. And then communication, you know, that's massive. Once you've gone beyond that, showing them that you're interested in them, you know, communicate and, you know, ask about the weather, make some plans for the future. My partner and I like to go out walking. So we always talk about the weather. So what's the weather doing on the weekend? Can we get a walk at the weekend? No, that's a really boring example. That's, that's our thing. We love to be outdoors together. So it is all about, right, we want to spend some time together. What's the weather doing? Have we looked at the long-term forecast? Is it going to be cold? You know, what clothes are we going to wear? Are we, are we going out for the full day? Do we need to pack sandwiches? You know, so 
we start the conversation around that, then it's about where are we going to go? Let's do some research about the walks we want to do. All sorts of things like that start you having those conversations. And then for us, when we're out walking, that's when we're so far away from anything, the phones are off and you start to relax and talk about your aspirations, your hopes, your dreams. You might even talk about, oh, you know what? That that food you cooked the other night, I, it, was, it was nice to have something different for a change, but I really didn't enjoy it. But because you're in a neutral environment, it's not a flashpoint. Exactly. And you're having, you can have that sort of nice, relaxed, open conversations with each other on any aspect without there the pressure. The pressure's always in the moment, isn't it? That's when there's a flashpoint. But as you said, there you are doing something that you enjoy and you're having an open conversation. Exactly. And that brings me on to the next point. Completely be yourself. Don't try to be somebody you think they want, unless they have specifically said to you, (laughs) I want you to do this or do that. (laughs) Just be yourself. Because remember, the person they fell in love with was yourself, the very core of who you are. And life, you know, over as life goes on, we put on all of these layers, all of these masks to try and be the person we think we should be, the person we believe society tells us we should be, our jobs dictate we should be. As we get older, we we project onto our partners what we believe they want us to be. And actually, when we start to peel all those masks away and get back to the very core of us, that's the person they fell in love with. Um, So many times I'll have clients say to me, but I feel so childish, but I felt like I, I felt like I was me. I felt like I was a young girl again. And oh. I said, how did your partner react? And the, they'll say, oh, my partner really loved it. We had such a good time together. We had a good day out. We had a lovely meal. Because you've got back into what really, really makes you tick. Yes. And I think you're right. We do wear a lot of masks. And, and, mm. and I think as women get, and I work obviously with midlife women, we get very concerned about the weight we are, the curves we are, the hair we've got. And I, I think a lot of the time, partners are not that concerned about or They're as not. concerned about that as we think they are. We're projecting what Instagram and, and other societal things, magazines, beauty manufacturers are telling us we should be like. And they see the person behind all that. Exactly. Uh, and I think we're, we put up barriers between ourselves, between us and our partners, because of those projections. That's it. And so often, you know, they just want us to be happy, just as we want them to be happy. That's all it is. And whatever makes us happy or makes them happy, you know, that's what we want for that person. Of course. And I think that and that means that that's something much deeper than all of this superficial stuff, which nice as it might be, is not is not really essentially who we are a lot of the time. Exactly. It's not. It's just stuff. That's wonderful. Deb, we've just talked for so many big, deep things that we could talk for hours on these these subjects because, I mean, they are endless and relationships are complicated things for nearly everybody. I would say at some stage meets an issue, whether that is a very serious one like some of your relationships and some of mine, but or that it's just the day-to-day, you know, wearing us down and losing connection. Exactly. But Deb, how can people get in touch with you, learn more about the work you do and connect with you? Okay, well, my website is notarehearsal.co.uk. I also have a podcast called The Real Relationships Show, which you'll find on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. And if people really want to find out a bit more, on the 7th of December, I'm running five days free training which you'll find more details at my website, notarehearsal.co.uk forward slash events. You can register for that free training or future ones if you can't make that date. So um, I've got a lot coming up. You can find out more about me there and uh, get to my website. Of course, I'm on social media as well. Um, Facebook page is Not A Rehearsal. And on LinkedIn, you'll find me as Deb Morgan, speaker, podcaster, coach, author. Deb That's wonderful. We'll put those links into the show notes as well. But I just like to thank you for coming on and sharing your story so honestly and openly. And I'm sure many of the listeners will take 
a lot away from this and amazing tips for us to start thinking about how we can move our relationships and make them stronger, healthier and more robust. Because we're going to live another 30, 40 years after our menopause and we're about to have a good time now. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions. Why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. You matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me and I would love to hear from you so drop me an email clarissa at clarissachristensen.com I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast and if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support pop over to my website clarissachristensen.com you can find free resources And you can book a one-to-one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the best ever Big Mac burger. Take it away, Hamburglar. Rubble, rubble. He said, there's more special sauce in every bite. Rubble, rubble. He said, rubble, rubble. Rubble, rubble. Rubble, rubble indeed, my friend. Try the juicier Big Mac and get 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Comparison to prior classic burgers, limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid once per day. Excludes tax. Must be opted into rewards. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whatever you're saving up for, a CD from Sandy Spring Bank lets you grow your savings at a guaranteed rate. Right now, earn interest at 5.50% APY on an 8-month CD special or 5.00% APY on a 14-month CD special. Learn more at sandyspringbank.com slash cdspecials. Minimum opening deposit to earn the annual percentage yield is $500 for the 8-month CD special and $2,500 for the 14-month CD special. Member FDIC.